Hello and welcome to the first episode of the LP Lounge. In this episode, I speak to my mentor, Dr. Mike Brocken, who is a popular music historian and semiotician and longtime presenter of BBC Radio Merseyside's programme Folk Scene. In this episode, we talk about why genre matters, talk about demographics, labels, and how education has an impact on our future performers. If you want to find out more about me, you can visit www.veronicasvinyl.com. I hope you enjoyed the episode. Like I said, I've been thinking about uh, genre, as you do, um, but particularly because this year I've had students for the first time again being almost aggressive about the fact that genres don't exist anymore and it's just you're pretty much a dinosaur if you think they do it's just yeah get over yourself pretty much and I thought it was really quite interesting because the last time I heard students making that kind of argument was about 2013 or 14 uh, not as aggressively but still in kind of no no genres are over we're just music and the rest of it um, and then it kind of faded away uh, so I thought well isn't it interesting that it seems to be coming in a kind of wave of a couple of years it lies dormant and then it resurfaces so that was my first thought but then I also thought well is it really cyclical or is it just me trying to kind of put that label on it am I interpreting it that way does it really ever go away and I don't know I'm not kind of making sense of it so far <laughs> Well, it's a bit of both, I would think. I mean, things are very cyclical in terms of understanding popular music. Mm. And I think genre uh, is a very, very key issue. But it, it does tend to uh, fade from view a little bit as students are very often invited. More recently, this is the case too, to kind of consider only performance and only themselves, let's say, as being at the centre of the whole issue you know, why they're going to university and and why they're studying in the first place. So I think that complicated issues like genre will be glossed over by young undergraduates because they simply aren't being pointed in the right direction to study or research popular music. All they're really concerned about are, and they're made to be concerned uh, by the universities and colleges around us, because they're bums on seats, really. And all they're really concerned about very often is their own sense of musicality. Mm. So if you look at the current wave of, uh, you know, popular music, you know, which, you know, you can listen to uh, through Spotify or Six Music or whatever you want to listen to, there, there are certainly some very, very important genre issues around. But again, a lot of students aren't really encouraged very much to look at other people's listening tastes, are they, by the universities? I mean, we know from our own experience at a certain university in Liverpool that they've moved over, you know, completely to performance-based criteria. So that's not very encouraging for students to consider what other people listen to. Mm. That then means that they very often end up making music that they like, but nobody else likes. So even if you're thinking in a performance-based criterion, you would have to consider whether what you like is actually a communication towards other people and something that they might actually appreciate. 
And once you start along that pathway, you then have to think about things like, well, what type of person is it? What's the gender? Is race involved? Are there indeed any subcultures, you know, that are out there and appreciate, you know, dark metal or whatever it happens to be, you know, from Norway or whatever it happens to be. So, so it is a very, very false interpretation of uh, what's uh, popular if one doesn't understand how to go about understanding genre mm. you know genre is one of those areas where if you kind of if you are making a little demo as a student in your own bedroom um you need to think about you know where a lot of these sources are coming from i mean they can just you know download beats and they can download riffs you know and a lot of it is artificial intelligence now that they're dealing with as well but all of this stuff does deal with taste so even if there's an art, artificial intelligence download that they're using as a backbeat or, a, or a, a prominent beat, it's usually because that particular backbeat was really popular in a subset of a genre. Let's just say, I don't know, in Brixton. Mm. So you've got to have, one has to try to reintroduce genre analysis periodically because it then gives a young person, even if they're completely and utterly self-obsessed, and they, they're going to be, you know, a star and all of that sort of thing, which actually I go back to the period of time when that wasn't the case at universities. Universities asked you to study and research into popular music cultures, mm. not the music, you know. You know, you, you, music is great, but you can only go so far with music, mm. you know. I mean, all because there's a, you know, a diminished ninth on a, the end of a bar of a particular piece of music doesn't explain why somebody in you know Prestwich in Manchester likes it it doesn't explain that it might explain how that person has created that chord progression but it doesn't really go much further than that it might also suggest of course that it's you know it, it's a it's a diminished ninth that was on a track that they like as well so that's good but that's a genre issue the communication of that kind of sound to other people then opens up what other people actually listen to it moves the student away then from um, the self-obsession of being, uh, you know, a future pop star and actually starts to get them interested in ordinary people. Mm. You know, I mean, we know Tag says it, doesn't he? You know, what, what, you know, 99% of the people of the world all know what they like, but don't ask them to read or write music because they can't. Mm. Got nothing to do with that. So once the genre uh, analysis door is opened in that way, so once you say to a student, this is okay, you know, I'm listening to your music now, uh, or I'm listening to your project, I'm hearing about your project, the demographics, but what demographics? Who do you expect to kind of get on board with this? And they might say, well, you know, there's a really good club in Slater Street. So yeah, well, who goes? And what type of, well, they all just go, all of what, what, what goes? So if you can try to get people to break down what they think is happening out there, then I think you're opening the genre door, whether it be music or film or reading or design or architecture, whatever it is, genre analysis is really, really important because you then start to move away from your own preconceptions and towards trying to understand what other people do and what other people like or, you know, don't like. And I think yeah. that's very important. I mean, it's interesting because um, that reminded me that this year, similarly, a lot of students have picked up on the fact that uh, vinyl and LPs are kind of, well, there is a bit of a rival. I mean, it has been for a while, but 
they've actually picked up on that without me having to highlight it for them, which is usually the case. Yeah. Um, and whenever they kind of talk about releasing work or trying to promote uh, an act that they found or anything like that, they tell me, well, we're going to do a physical vinyl release as well. And as much as I love that, sometimes I look at it and think, well, this genre though, will it sell on vinyl? You know, is that how people use it? I mean, something like EDM, okay, might be interesting as a vinyl release, but that's not really how the music is used. Uh, yeah whereas lots of other genres are. Well, they might even be uh, doing something rather self-indulgent by, by that. I mean, in, in order to, uh, I, when I ran Joe Flannery's record company for a while, it was about seven or eight years, I never released any vinyl at the time, um, but for several reasons. First of all, it wasn't trendy at the time. It was a dead um, format by that stage. Mm. But also because I tended to think that if we were going to do that, you'd have to go back into the, the entire genre situation. Remember, you know, you've got the Barton collection, his, his entire collection, one might argue that, well, the, the, the meat of his entire collection was genre based, wasn't it? It was jazz. However, if you look very closely at it, you'll find that uh, labels specified in certain jazz, didn't they? You've probably got a lot of Verve records in there. Yeah. You've probably got some Blue Note records in there. Yeah. They issued specifically jazz music. Mm -hmm. So in order to understand or to get young people to understand um, genre or releasing vinyl, one has to get them to understand how labels used to genericize and genrify. Uh, in two different ways. But on the other hand, the same label might be dealing in genre culture as well, so that they would release jazz on a certain label, or there would be labels for folk music. There might be labels such as Island Records to begin with, for reggae and ska to begin with. Yeah. So the whole decision processes of somebody like, say, Chris Blackwell at Island Records was genre-based. You know, he started to record white people even though he's a white Jamaican, he just recorded black Jamaicans almost exclusively to begin with. But he started to record Britain's underground, you know, free, mop the hoople, Fairport Convention, Jethro Tull, all of those sort of people, because he saw a new scene going. Something was happening, you know, which was kind of non-chart related. So it's all about genre. Mm -hmm. And of course, genre then means that it can be linked to issues to do with age, and race so you'd have to decide if you're on a little liverpool label who's who might be likely to buy this stuff um how many might you issue um could you actually offer a record shop a sale or return because that's what a lot of small labels used to do in the old days there was a label you know you might remember um well you won't remember but you might remember when we've we've studied together stag records yeah in, in liverpool and you know that was liverpool's first proper independent label yeah but they didn't deal in rock they casually released it was almost by mistake uh, the first supercharge album which was kind of rock funk and uh, a heavy rock album by a group called pinnacle but other than that it was all cabaret because you see alan richards at stag knew that he could go to a gig by one of those bands one of the popular liverpool cabaret bands like the letterman they were a really good cabaret band and he could sit there with maybe 30 copies of the letterman's album and at the end of their gig in the nightclub itself he'd sell the albums 
Yeah. And he, uh, didn't he even design the catalogue numbers for the records uh, he did, yeah. to reflect yeah. that? He did, yeah. And if he had an act on who he, he didn't think it was worth financing out of his own money, um, he, that is, his, his prefix was SG for Stag. Yeah. But if he, if he got a group who thought, mm, well, they're quite good, but I don't want to put too much money into that, he'd organise finance from an HP company, a higher purchase company, so that they could pay back the higher purchase company. And that, those prefixes were HP. So Alan issued on SG and HP. And also, of course, he, he ended up uh, recording what wasn't at the time a series, but it, looking back, it looks like this fantastic series of Liverpool comedians' albums from the 1970s. He sold something in the region of, I think, 40 or 50,000 copies of Tom O'Connor's album, because he was massive at the time. But he also recorded uh, Stevie Fay and Al Dean, um, all sorts of really interesting uh, comedians who were dead popular on the Northwest uh, cabaret scene at the time. That's genre, isn't it? That's really important. He knew he could bring some money in. In fact, I think the one album he didn't sell was by uh, a guy called Johnny Hackett. And Johnny Hackett was nationally popular as a Liverpool comedian. You'd see him on, you could wiki him, you know, Johnny Hackett with two T's. But he, he never played Liverpool very much, I don't think. So his albums didn't sell. <laughs> So it, it, genre is right at the nexus of the whole issue because Alan might have been finding some of these comedians not very funny, but he knew that other people found them hilarious. So there was profit in it, or at least he could balance his books with it. So in every way, shape or form, whether it be vinyl or CD production, or just wondering why, you know, my, you know, say if you'd, if, if you'd written a song, you know, where all of those influences came from? Because we know that nobody, nobody is, is completely original. Nobody is entirely original. And even if an 18 or 19 year old said, oh, well, I wrote it in it. I thought about it. You know, he's probably a Coldplay or a radio headphone or his dad was or something like that. And so there's elements of that in it. And if we can encourage young people to kind of in a way, sometimes put the instrument down or put the computer down for five minutes, put your phone down for five minutes and start to think about where maybe their mums and dads taste came from and why. And then think about, well, if you want to be in the business, who might like your stuff? Well, even if they are really, you know, still rather self-obsessed, at least they will start to appreciate that genre will tell them a heck of a lot about the world out there because music is a communication device, isn't it? Yeah. You know, never mind about it being music. Music is a communication device. That's what it is. Yeah. And that's why nobody cares whether you play in a major seventh and it sounds a bit West Coasty to you. If they just think it sounds great, you know, that, that's a start, isn't it? Yeah. I mean, that kind of reminds me of something else that I've been reading a lot about. I think it was about a week ago that uh, Republic Records, I think it was, announced that they were dropping the urban label from their uh, kind of their system at all their catalogs. Yeah. Um, and I know that label has been quite criticized for a while, and particularly during the Grammys, I believe it was, when Tyler, the creator, said that this is just rubbish. What does this label mean? It's just another way to categorize me according to race. Yeah. Um, and there's been a lot of debate uh, about that uh, kind of more widespread as saying, well, are other labels going to follow suit? And 
I mean, on the one hand, I do agree with, well, it is a way of kind of labeling according to race. Again, we're just try, trying to find fancier words every time, but yeah. it's the same thing. But on the other hand, I mean, urban can also mean a lot more in terms of, well, the origins of the music and kind of how it relates to other music of this kind of urban cityscape rather than yeah, yeah. race. Yeah. Well, um, well, we all know that we all know that the very phrase "music of black origin" is problematic. Yeah. And, and in popular music studies, in, in in the academic study of popular music, we don't necessarily intend to find answers to these things. Mm. And I think that very often we shouldn't always expect students to find answers to mm. it, even if they are undergraduates or even postgraduates. But to observe it, I also read the the, the article as well. I, I read a. A version of it in the eye I think in the independent and um, it struck me as being a kind of a very interesting statement especially given you know uh, the the post murder issue yeah. in, in America uh, it is very interesting and it's very genuine and it's a it's a very authentic comment to make at this moment in time yeah. but it doesn't tell us anything about genre actually no. because if you need to know about genre from let's say an industrial point of view, mm. if we need to know that, categorization has always been at the heart of the industrial process. Now, some of that categorization is obviously racist. I mean, when Billboard stopped calling things race music and started to call things R&B, that was a Billboard decision in the United States. Yeah. That was a kind of a latter-day realization that, oh, you know, all of this black music seems to be selling, you know, right across the board. It's a genre decision, isn't it? Now, whether we think it's racist or not, you know, we'd have to research into that and to, and to discover it probably was, undoubtedly. But, but you know, it's from, you know, 70-odd years ago or 60-odd years ago, so there's absolutely nothing we can do about it now. But that's what makes the study, the academic study of popular music, fascinating. That's a genre decision, probably, I would say almost definitely, by white, older, popular music executives yeah. in the music industry and those who run the music newspapers at the time. Uh, and there we are. They, you know, and if you wanted to go in to look at the roots of some of the discussions, I'm sure there's some memos and details from Billboard's archives that you could find some fascinating, really fascinating discussions about this, which proves the fact that black music, white mu white people have always uh, taken the advantage of all of this, and black music are very uh, black people have very often made the music. Mm. We know that to be the case, anyway. Um, on the other hand, though, we do have to understand that, and of course, a lot of young people don't really get this, you've got to make money. I don't know of any system whereby a young undergraduate of, say, 20 years of age who wants to play will be able to continue playing without making money. Mm. If he thinks or she thinks that they can, they won't be able to do that. I would have to say, you know, if I was talking to them, I'd say, well, there's absolutely no way you can do that. You've got to market yourself or you've got to allow yourself to be commercially exploited. Mm. Now, well, that's the thing I say to them as well, that, you know, they criticize certain labels for uh, being exploitative or, you know, just in it for the money. You go, well, if you're in the industry, you are in it for the money. Ultimately, if you didn't yeah. want to take part of it, then keep playing in your bedroom. And that's great. But that, you know, you have to understand that it is a consumer market and it is a capitalist system. And, it, you know, mm. we have to just kind of accept where we're willing to compromise and when we're not. 
Yeah, it is. I mean, it's a, it is a case. It's not exactly the same as selling tins of beans. Not, not exactly the same. And even selling tins of beans isn't selling tins of beans. Some beans are better than other beans, aren't they? <laughs> yeah. Some some tins of beans have half a tin of beans in them, don't they? You know. So, but you know, I'm being facetious there. But it, you know, it, it is something that you do have to come to terms with. And I blame the education system for all of this because the education system is, as we started this conversation off, you said, I don't know if it's in cycles or not. It is. Because the education system at the moment is almost denigrating the study of popular music, unless it's about you being a star or, you know, you, you know, it's kind of fame school stuff, isn't it? Yeah. Really? Now, that's incorrect because it's giving young people the wrong idea. Those who are genuinely interested in popular music and maybe even might end up studying it need to be pointed in the direction of saying, listen, you're probably never going to make it. But that should never, ever diminish your interest in popular music. So there are very many different avenues that you might like to take or at least open, open yourself to them being an option for you as you get older and as you engage with the world around you. And so or understanding how not just the business, but how ordinary people work in their taste cultures, in their categorizations, in their understandings of things, and also and how the industry you know, commercially exploits uh, talent or lack of talent or whatever it happens to be, is a very, very important thing to understand. Mm. And the, the opening door to that is through genre analysis. And of course, it leads to your favorite A word, which is authenticity, isn't it? Yeah. How people regard things that are authentic. And the moment you get, I always thought that the moment you get, you get, you know, a class full of, you know, 20 odd year old or maybe 19, 20 year old musicians in particular, mm -hmm. who we used to teach a lot of, suddenly start to think that other people's authenticities are not necessarily their own. You've made a breakthrough. Mm. And that's specifically through the opening door of genre analysis, which then leads into communication study, which also leads into semiotics and structural analysis. So you can take a song apart without even knowing what chords in there, really. You can also retrospectively listen to other music and find riffs and licks and trills and little episodic markers here and there, which have been lifted to make it popular. And you start to realize that, you know, commercial exploitation is very often based around genre analysis yeah you only have to listen to amy winehouse's remixes from all those years ago to see what happened uh, when you know the producers remixed her yeah i was listening to a podcast that i mean i don't think it's great overall because it's very much focused on that kind of what does the music theory say and this will prove why a track is popular and why it isn't and i just don't yeah, that's, that's absolute rubbish I think so as well. But um, they were talking about uh, Doja Cat, who's one of my favorite current artists. Yeah. Uh, I think her latest album is really, really great. And she's had a huge uh, single with Say So that's been kind of topping the billboards uh, and did a remix with Nicki Minaj, which again, has been really, really successful. So they're saying, well, what made this so successful then? Because she's quite a niche artist overall, didn't really expect that kind of uh, breakthrough. 
zero. Um, so they're talking about say so, and then they started going into it. Well, let's look at what classical music influences are here. And I was ready to turn it off, but then they went, no, hang on. Let's listen to Nile Rodgers instead uh, and listen to the guitar from that and yeah. manage to show how it's been adapted. And all of a sudden, you know, it made sense and really pointed out something that I hadn't noticed before. Well, lots of people liked or still like Nile Rodgers and it's been kind of his style of guitar has been used in so many different um, genres and styles yeah. Yeah. and hits. So and he's been so popular over the last well, de almost a decade yeah. now. Hasn't he? And he's, he, he practically lives over here now. He's mm. so popular. Yeah, I mean, he would have been playing on team festivals this summer. Oh, yeah. You know, I agree with that. I mean, I, my favourite of the last few weeks has been the Christine and Queen's uh, single, uh, Disappearing. I don't know if you know that. No, Absolutely. I don't think I've heard it. Uh, it I, I, I just, it's the best record of the year for me, mm. uh, alongside uh abby buffalo i really like abby buffalo as well but christine and queens is really interesting because I, I was sitting listening to it on the on six music they played it a bit and there's a there's a i thought what's this like what's this like and i finally got to the bottom and somewhere in the back of my brain one, one of the reasons why i liked it and it's really daft at one stage she, her voice intonation um it, it kind of, she clips it as it's rising. Mm. So it's ascending little vocal track and she clips it and it, it just finishes the line much, much quicker than it normally, you would normally expect. And that reminded me, believe it or not, of a song that was written by Poco, who were a country rock band. <laughs> Don't sound like Christine and Queens. And, and the song's called Call It Love. Uh, so if you listen to Disappearing by Christine and the Queens, and then if you listen to Call It Love by Poco, they're both on YouTube. They do both do the same vocal thing. Mm. And in, in Poco's case, it's on, it's on the word better. So he says it makes us feel better. So he shortens it. Mm. And Christine does this, you know, in the Queens, they, she does it the same in the same way. And that's why I like it. Now tell that to a musicologist. I know. And you know what, when you've just said that, uh, it reminded me of... Uh, getting better by the beatles yeah they yeah, kind of do yeah. a similar break yeah, there well, but it, it's in a very uh, kind of typical paul mccartney fashion well, it is, yeah and and you know the word better is actually a very very good word to use because it does allow you to divide the word into two doesn't it or yeah. else or abbreviate it you know and it links into this idea of course you know using the word better you know we, we have to go back to the genre analysis one of the things that i think that the current crop of undergraduates are faced with is not understanding the idea that one thing isn't intrinsically better than another. Now, yeah. that's musicology, formal musicology. What we're talking about is musicology, actually. Mm. I mean, you know, and you don't throw the baby out, out with the bathwater. I understand that. I mean, I play and read music. Mm. But at the same time, the idea of suggesting that some things are better than other things is a completely phony remark from musos and not appreciating that people's authenticities dictate whether it's good or not. They don't necessarily dictate betterness. Betterness isn't something philosophically that we should look for, especially at the moment. Mm. You know, we should be more, more, more communally aware of other people's tastes than we've ever been and of other people's situations and of their imperfections and of their difficulties at the moment. Mm -hmm. So why should we suggest all of the time, especially to young students, 
that one type of music is intrinsically better than another. What we should be suggesting to them is saying, why do those people like that music? And why do they actually shun that music? Yeah. That's genre analysis. And you will say, well, some of them do, some of them don't. Some of them are within this kind of circle. Some of them aren't. Some of them move in and out of these genre traditions. You know, so that's where the students will then say, so genre doesn't matter. But <laughs> you can say, no, that's where genre does matter. Mm. Because it's fascinating for the popular music researcher to follow those strands of authenticity. We have different authenticities throughout our lives. Sometimes we go back to them, don't we? Very often we hold on to them, but we, we bolt on all sorts of different authenticities. That's how musicians in the popular sphere should appreciate their position if they want to develop as a professional. Mm. If they don't want to do that and they just think it's about themselves, well, go and study classical music. Yeah. Um, well, if we're then saying that, uh, of course, it's matter, it matters, at least to popular music. Um, I, I think you probably remember one of my pet peeves for quite a long time has been the organization of records in record stores. And of course, more and more record stores are failing. So, you know, it might be a, a thing that I'll get over eventually. But why? do we see so often this idea of kind of we have pop rock as one genre that you'll find your records and then you'll maybe have something like heavy metal or reggae world music soundtracks and so everything else is just under this pop rock category and that's meant to be helpful i mean why do we or why do record stores tend to approach uh, genre classification in that way do you think well i think i think it's it's um it's to do with a number of different things. It's certainly to do with the way that rock has changed its image and the way that um, currently at the moment, uh, hard rock and heavy metal uh, is probably less popular than it's been for about a decade or so mm -hmm. since, you know, since the Foo Fighters and Queens of the Stone Age and all of those great bands uh, were at their peak. Yeah. You know. um, if you listen to a lot of the uh, the music that comes out of this country in particular so let's think about this country um i, I think pop rock is probably a pretty good categorization actually because of somebody of my age who, who you know for me you know hard rock i still love hard rock as much as i ever did really um, i would say that a great deal of this sort of um you know i mean a band i like at the moment are pigs 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 i don't know if you come across them and uh, DC Fontaine I like as well. But they're, to me, they're more kind of post-punk, you know. Mm. Um, I would not expect to find pigs, 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 pigs in rock and metal. Mm. And I would probably go to a pop rock area because, you know, their songs are like two and a half minutes, three minutes long. Mm. Uh, they have a kind of a bit of a clashy sort of pistolsy undertone sort of feel to them. So for me, you know, that would go into there. Mm. Um, I, I would say as far as HMV was concerned, it's also a convenient place to dump all of your punk as well. <laughs> you know, the buzzcocks. You know. um, so, so again, I always find that it, it never gets me down. I mean, if I go in, I haven't been able to go in for a while, as you can imagine. I only go into HMV these days, to be honest, to see if I can pick up any cheap vinyl because they, you know, they've overbought. So look out once we get back to normal. In fact, on Monday, 
they might open here in Chester. I'll be in there like a rat up a drain pipe, I think. Yeah, maybe I'll pick up another Rumours album. <laughs> yeah, you might be able to, or, or some, they'll have some cheap jazz stuff that they won't, be, won't know what to do with. Oh, maybe they'll have David Crosby's latest. Oh yes, they might do. Yeah, well, Crosby's stuff is really interesting. I mean, you know, I mean, you know, broadcasting on Radio Merseyside, I've I've played David Crosby's music on folk scene, mm. not because I think it's folk. It's because I think his music's really good. I'm never very keen on him as an individual, but his music's really good. But I'm I play it occasionally on on folk scene because nobody else plays it. Mm. And that's a good enough genre reason for me. That's a genre decision. Yeah. In other words, I'm, I feel I've expanded folk scene's remit because I'm the presenter. It's my decision. <laughs> the BBC trusts me. And so I'm going to drop an acoustic David Crosby track in yeah. because I haven't heard him on the radio and nobody else is doing it. And that's a decision genre-wise. And I think, you know, in the HMV shops and all the rest of categorization, it's just fascinating to research yeah. it. You know, it doesn't get on my nerves. I just think it's just another research topic that a young undergraduate <laughs> might get involved in. Yeah. You know, it's all about research. And, and they might come up with different ideas to my own because they see things quite differently than I do. Or they might say, oh, yes, well, such and such a band, you know, shouldn't be in here. And I'd go, I've never heard of them. Who are they? And then they might be able to tell me because then you've got them interested in trying to tell me about a group that I don't know about. Mm. Genre. That's how we do it. You know, it's a discussion point. We don't even have to form any hard conclusions about this. Mm. You know, we don't have to prove anything. But if we don't study it, I think we're going to lose out, you know, because for me, the last five years, has been very difficult, very, very difficult in for popular music studies. I think in the 20 odd years I've been involved, well, 25 years or more I've been involved in the study of popular music. I've never known a time like this for people being um, less interested in the academic research of it all and more interested in, you know, fame schools and things like that. And I, I find that to be the most disturbing thing at the moment. And that's where I think genre analysis is being kind of swerved by students. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. it's um, in interesting. We've got either the performance side or the, the classical music formal route of understanding music. Uh, um, yeah, yeah. we're, we're banging two, on the door. <laughs> yeah, they're two, they're two strands of the same rooted problem, which yeah. is to do with, you know, dead composers, uh, dots on a page and fame school uh, it's all really elitist to me yeah um, you could argue that there could be a good argument i'm not quite aware of it just at the moment off the top of my head which might disprove that it's elitist but as far as i can see it seems elitist to me and it's it's like uncaring yeah you know or because you might you know so it's all very well for somebody to sort of be writing these songs saying nobody's ever influenced them that's naive and they might grow out of it but i it, it, it's uncaring to think about maybe somebody that collects records because it's one of the only ways of, you know, understanding the world around them. Mm. And maybe, you know, collecting only certain types of things or going to certain gigs because they feel comfortable at gigs mm. or listening to certain music because they can't go out. Mm. I think I think all of that is part of popular music studies and more things besides having no confidence in yourself, losing your confidence and, and music helping you to get back a bit of that. What types of music does that for you? 
and being able to meet people but you know it isn't it going to be interesting you know if you might be able to go to a gig in the next six months but only at a distance mm. you know i think a lot of young people and older people a lot of music lovers struggle with that anyway you know yeah that's why so many people collect it's why so many people listen to music in the home. You know, those kind of areas which are based around genres and our disposition towards authenticities and also our mental states at the time uh, are extremely important to study. Mm. Much, much more than dots on the page. <laughs> who cares about that? Yeah. When, when, when popular music can lead you into looking at somebody who really used popular music as a way of making themselves better. Mm. And I don't mean better than anybody else. I mean, well, yeah, that seems to me to be the crucial issue and not, you know, ignoring Niles, uh, you know, uh, I don't know, Sheik's influence on music for the sake of some bloody Mozart piece that everybody, you know, I mean, that's just complete rubbish. We should be thinking about what is being communicated and who's listening and how might it help them and how might our current, you know, problems at the moment be, um, how my music might encourage us to, to come out of all of that. Mm. You know, I, I, and the only way of doing that is to appreciate who's on the other end of this listening model, this communication model, not, not, not who's making the music. Well, I was putting together a session uh, on the vinyl revival recently, uh, just a couple of days ago. And um, I was looking at statistics specifically because it was looking at kind of economy and music industry. Um, so first, you know, presented the statistics in terms of how uh, kind of the sales have gone for vinyl and the increase uh, over the past 28 years, really. Uh, and then I saw a report from, I think, 2018 that said, well, approximately 20 percent of people who say they buy vinyl don't even own a turntable. And it was kind of used as a, oh, isn't this surprising? And I thought, well, of course you know, because it's not about being able to play the record it's yeah. about so many other things uh, what that lp means you know the album art um have you bought five copies of it previously like i have you know well, yeah, what's yeah, the yeah. story behind it, it doesn't yeah, matter right. if you can play it but you see a lot of a lot of you know if we're looking at the muso elitist pathway again a lot of those people would be written off as loonies wouldn't they yeah yeah well you know? Hopefully soon the, the lunatics can take over the asylum again. Yeah. There we go. So behavior, human behavior. Um, it's all it's all about genre, isn't it? It's all about how you uh, how you use and value certain musical sounds and artifacts. Mm. The artifact is very very important to all of us. Yeah. Now we're saying that, of course. While, you know, the generation, well, two or three generations that we both taught in the last two or three years, I've never thought of music as, a, as, as an artifact now, no. because it's so, you know, downloadable and easy to stream and all the rest of it. Mm. But nevertheless, there are still an amount of people, going back to the query from your student about issuing it on vinyl, yeah. um, who would buy vinyl. Now, if you're starting up a, a small record label, you've got to find out about those people, haven't you? You have to do your research, which may end up being, you know, a very productive thing from a business point of view, but actually may end up being a very good essay. Yeah. Well, maybe we should talk more about artifacts next time. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> And that's it for this week's episode. I hope you enjoyed it. 
For more information, visit www.veronicasvinyl.com or find me on Twitter at Veronica's Vinyl. <laughs>